0: following is a teaching from Irving Bible Church. For more information on how you can join us on a Sunday or take your next step, visit irvingbible.org. If you have your Bible, grab it and let's head to Matthew chapter 8. Matthew chapter 8 this morning. In October of 2019, I had the opportunity, along with a team of other IBCers, to travel to Africa. We visited uh, Uganda, Rwanda, South Sudan. And the point of our trip was just to go and to to serve and to encourage our ministry partners in that part of the world. And and to serve and encourage the people that they serve and encourage. And it was an amazing trip. But but I got to tell you, as much as our purpose was to go and to serve and encourage them my life was deeply impacted by this trip. It was not an overstatement to say it was a life-changing experience for me. To be in that place and to see those people and to see the tenacity of their faith. Despite all the struggles, all the hardships, all the suffering that they've endured. To see the way in which they cling so deeply to Christ and to the transforming hope of the gospel. It was, it was deeply inspiring and impactful for my faith. But one of the parts of that whole experience that was so impactful for me was actually the opportunity that we had while we were in Kigali, Rwanda to visit the Rwanda Genocide Memorial. That in that place in Kigali, over 250,000 bodies of those who died in the Rwandan genocide from 1994 are interred are in that place. 1994, the, the, the violence, the genocide between the Hutus and the Tutsis That took the lives of over 800. Some suggest as many as over a million people. That died in the span of just 100 days. This horrific. Tribal. Warfare. uh, Genocide. And uh, one of the things that's so. um, Striking about that reality. Is that this took place. In what many people consider the The most. Christian country in Africa. It was a heartbreaking and profoundly impactful experience. And it just reminded me of the human tendency that's, that's as old as the fall, the human tendency that, that we have to, to divide up the world into tribes, to divide ourselves between us and them, the good guys and the bad guys the right and the wrong, the insiders and the outsiders. It's a horrific example of a common human tendency to divide up the world between us and them. I once heard a preacher suggest that we tend to gravitate towards either people who are like us, people who like us, or people we want to be like. And you see this tendency in in all of us, but you see it especially in high school, don't you? Like if you're a high school student or you've ever been a high school student, you see this tendency. You gravitate to the people who are like us, the people who like us, or the people we want to be like. I remember a freshman, as a freshman in high school, I showed up to Grapevine High School in 1987. Yes, you can do the math. That's a long time ago. I showed up as a freshman in high school. Seeing this phenomenon, the ways in which groups sort of segmented themselves from one another, creating kind of tribes right there within the life of our school. And, and I had to figure out who are my people? What's my tribe? Who, who am I going to identify with? And I remember being particularly drawn to, to one group, one, one tribe, th- those who actually referred to themselves as the nonconformists. They were those who wore all black. They had weird haircuts. Sometimes the guys even occasionally wore eyeliner, which your pastor may or may not have done along the way. Um, The the thing is, I wanted to be just like them. You catch the irony? (laughs) I wanted to to conform to the nonconformists. I wanted them to be my people. We all gravitate to people who are like us, people who like us. Or people we want to be like. And we divide up the world into us, them, the good guys, the bad guys, the insiders, and the outsiders. Jesus was born into a divided world. The the primary division of Jesus' day, the the culture that he was born into, was the, the division between Jews and Gentiles. The people of God. And everybody else. And Jesus is born into a divided world. And I think if we're really honest, we can say we live in a divided world, don't we? A world that's often divided along political lines or racial, cultural lines, socioeconomic lines, lifestyle kinds of lines. We live in a world that tends towards these lines of division. And we have a lot to learn, I believe, by looking at the example of Jesus, the way in which Jesus navigated a divided world. And so that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to look at Jesus and his interaction with a group of people, with with Gentiles, a a number of folks that he encountered along the way. And the way in which Jesus navigated his divided world, I believe, has profound things to teach us as we seek to navigate our divided world. So this morning, we're going to look at three scenes From the life and ministry of Jesus. And then we're going to draw three implications from that. You with me? Okay. Three scenes. Then three implications. So let's go. First scene. Matthew chapter 8. Matthew chapter 8. Now before we actually read this text. We need a little bit of the context. And here's what's going on. Jesus has just concluded the Sermon on the Mount. Right. Matthew chapter 8 comes right after. You guessed it. Matthew chapter 7. And in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Jesus gives the Sermon on the Mount. It's his teaching. About the nature of this upside down kingdom that he has come to bring to to turn the world as they knew it upside down to defy all kinds of expectations to bring God's kingdom into this world. And what we see then beginning in Matthew chapter eight is now Jesus is putting the kingdom on display. He's taught about the kingdom and now he's putting it on display. And what we always need to remember when we come to stories like this one, a miracle story, and each of these stories we're going to see this morning is a miracle story. Every time we come to a miracle story, we have to recognize that there's something more going on here than merely Jesus' divine power, right? Certainly that's part of it, that we see these stories and go, wow, what is this? What's happening? Jesus' divine power. And yet there's more to the story than merely Jesus' divine power, that every one of Jesus' miracles— actually tells us something about the nature of the kingdom that he came to bring. Every one of Jesus' miracles shows us something about the way that God sees the world, the way that God wants the world to be, and the way that the world will one day be when God sets it all to rights. That's what we see when we pick up here in Matthew chapter 8. Begin reading with me in verse 5. When Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him asking for help. Now stop right there. This is the point at which I really wish I had a soundtrack to my sermon, right? This sermon would be greatly enhanced by sort of the soundtrack underneath, because when you hear this word, you see this word centurion, you're supposed to hear the imperial march underneath it, right? We've talked about this before, right? Dun, 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 dun. right? If you're not a Star Wars fan, I can't help you, right? (laughs) I will pray for you, but I can't help you, right? We're supposed to hear this soundtrack underneath. Centurion. This is this is a a bad guy. This is a member of the evil empire. A centurion was a professional Roman soldier who oversaw a group of a hundred Roman soldiers. Thus, the name centurion. He oversaw a group of a hundred in a place like Capernaum, a relatively small town in the around the Sea of Galilee. This is likely the highest ranked uh, material uh, military leader of the Roman army in that area this is the occupying force the foreign army who has come into god's land and occupied it and keeping god's people under their subjection we hear centurion we're immediately supposed to think bad guy evil empire and yet here's the centurion who comes to jesus to ask for help Undoubtedly, this guy has heard about Jesus. Maybe he's even heard Jesus. Maybe he's listened to a sermon or two along the way. Perhaps he's even been present to to observe a miracle. And now he has a situation in his life where he needs help. And so his impulse is, I'm gonna go to Jesus. This man is a Roman centurion, a Gentile. The insiders and the outsiders. And this guy is definitely an outsider. Watch what happens next. Lord, he said, my servant lies at home, paralyzed, suffering terribly. And Jesus said to him, shall I come and heal him? And the centurion replied, Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell them, I tell one, go, and he goes, and that one to come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. Now, it's really interesting. Jesus asked him, should I come with you? Should I come to your house to heal him? And that was a really big deal. The, the, the disciples' jaws are gaping open at this point. Right, That in that day, the us, them, insider, outsider mentality of Jews and Gentiles. Jews don't go into the home of Gentiles. The very fact that Jesus would entertain that idea was shocking and scandalous to the disciples. Jesus says, should, I, should I come with you to your home and, and, and heal him? Now, I don't know about you, but I know for sure my answer to that question Right? Should I come with you to your house? Yes, Jesus, absolutely. Come with me. right? Come with me so that I can watch. I can see. You can see him. You can touch him. You can heal him. And I can be there to witness it. That way that I know that it's real. I know that it's legit. I know that it happens. And I maintain some sense of control. That's the way that I would. Yes, Jesus, come with me. But it's interesting. That's not the way the centurion responds at all. He says, I don't, I don't even deserve to have you come under my roof. But I know that if you just say the word, this centurion has come to know enough about Jesus to know that he is a man with spiritual authority. And just as the centurion has authority to tell others what to do when they do it, so too he knows that for Jesus just to speak the word and the servant will be healed. Now watch the way that Jesus responds. Verse 10, when Jesus heard this, he was amazed. I always love to watch when Jesus gets amazed. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed. And he said to those following him, truly, I tell you, I've not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. I say to you that many will come from the east and west and will take their places in the feast of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into the darkness where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then Jesus said to the centurion, Go, let it be done just as you believed it would. And his servant was healed at that moment. Now what Jesus says in response in his amazement, is itself amazing. That he says, I haven't found anyone in all of Israel with this kind of great faith. Jesus takes this Gentile, this Roman centurion, and holds him up as the example of faith. And isn't it interesting when you think about the way that Jesus talked about the faith of disciples? Right? How did Jesus refer to the, the faith of his disciples time and time and time again? You remember? He says, oh, you of little faith. The disciples are the ones that have little faith. And now Jesus holds up this outsider and says, this man is the greatest example. I haven't found anybody with a faith like this in all of Israel. And then Jesus makes reference to the reality that, that one day, that there will be many like this man who come from East and West. This is Jesus' way of speaking of people from all over the world and from every tribe and nation and people and language. People will come from East and West to share in this great feast along with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is Jesus' way of talking about the multi-ethnic nature of the kingdom that He has come to bring. And he says, many who are considered outsiders will be made insiders. And that some who think themselves insiders will actually find themselves on the outside because the way into this kingdom that Jesus has come to bring is not through tribal identity. It is through faith. And Jesus holds up this man, this Gentile, this Roman centurion as a great example of faith. And I just have a feeling that the scene ends with the, disciples jaws gaping open all right that's scene 1 you ready scene 2 let's go a little bit further down in the same chapter Matthew chapter 8 we're going to pick up in verse 28 Matthew 8:28 when he arrived at the other side in the region of the gadarenes two demon possessed men came from the tombs to meet him they were so violent that no one could pass that way what do you want with us son of god they shouted Have you come here to torture us before the appointed time? And some distance from them, a large herd of pigs was feeding. And the demons begged Jesus, if you drive us out, send us into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, go. So they came out and they went into the pigs and the whole herd rushed down the steep bank and into the lake. And they died in the water. And those tending to the pigs ran off and they went into town and reported all this, including what had happened to the demon possessed men. Then the whole town went out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they pleaded with him to leave their region. Now, when we come to this verse, once again, we need our soundtrack. Because we're supposed to hear it when it says the other side. Jesus went to the other side of the lake. To the side of the lake that no good self-respecting Jew would ever go. Jesus went to the Gentile side of the lake the other side where the outsiders are. And here he encounters the ultimate outsiders that we find here, two men who are living among the tombs, two men who were possessed by demons. Now let's be really honest. Many of us today read this and, and it sort of makes us uncomfortable, right? We prefer a world that's neat and tidy where everything is controlled and predictable. We prefer not to think of a world with spiritual warfare. And yet the story told in the pages of the Bible is a story of cosmic spiritual warfare. It says there is an enemy of God who is out to undermine God's good intention for his world at every turn and that he has forces on his behalf that are at work in the world in Jesus day and in ours. And here are two men who have become victims of that enemy. Two men whose lives have been oppressed by these evil forces. And we're told that they live out among the tombs, which is sort of weird and scary enough, right? But that also we're told that they're, they're violent. And so nobody could even go by. They have to avoid this area because these men are so violent um, we actually read in the other accounts of this, this same interaction in, the math, or in Luke and, and Mark that these men were naked. They had lived for a long time without clothes. So these are scary, violent, demon-possessed nudists, apparently. Now, what, what's really remarkable about this story is if you look at it in its context, immediately preceding this scene is the story of Jesus and his buddies crossing over the lake and the great life-threatening storm. You remember this? The disciples think they're going to die. And Jesus calms the storm. This great life-threatening storm. And then they arrive at the other side and they have this encounter with the two demon-possessed men. And then at the end of the story, the people come out and say, Get out of here. We don't want you here. Think about it. I mean, 2,000 pigs were told in the Gospel of Mark that what Jesus just did made a significant economic impact. On that region. And they say we don't want you here. Get out. And they do. They leave. The very next scene is now back at Capernaum. So apparently. Jesus and his friends. Have made this whole journey. Just for this encounter. With these two men. The ultimate. Outsiders. Gentiles. In the Gentile region. Possessed by demons. Scary. Scary violent and yet they have an encounter with jesus that is transformative it's uh, important to note that when you read the other gospel writers accounts they actually zero in on one of these guys the one that responds to jesus in faith and actually wants to go with jesus he wants to become jesus disciple he's had this life-changing encounter he says jesus let me come with you and interestingly enough jesus tells him "No, no no instead of coming with me here's what i want you to do I want you to go out and tell everybody what the Lord has done for you and the way that he has shown you mercy. Once again, interesting contrast to when Jesus does a miracle with the Jewish people of his day. Nearly every miracle that Jesus does among the Jewish people at the end of it, he says, don't tell anybody. I don't, don't, don't tell anybody what you've seen. Don't tell anybody what I did. Because Jesus doesn't want people just flocking to him for all the wrong reasons. Most of the time, Jesus says a miracle. He says, don't tell anybody. But when you read about this account in the other gospels, Jesus says to this guy, go tell everybody. And apparently he did. Because the next time Jesus shows up on the other side, huge crowds of people flock to him this demon-possessed Gentile has a life-changing encounter with Jesus. And then this Gentile becomes the first missionary to the Gentiles. And this scene is intended to remind Matthew's original audience that now God has called them to take the message of Jesus to all the Gentiles, to all nations. That's scene two. Ready for scene three? Scene three. Flip over just a few pages. Matthew chapter 15. Matthew chapter 15. We pick up there in verse 21. Matthew writes, leaving that place, Jesus withdrew to the region of Tyre and Sidon. A Canaanite woman from the vicinity came to him crying out, "Lord, Son of David, have mercy on my daughter. On, have mercy on me. My daughter is demon-possessed and suffering terribly." Now, once more, we need the soundtrack. Because when we hear Tyre and Sidon, our ears are supposed to perk up. The Hebrew prophets refer to Tyre and Sidon over and over and over again as sort of exemplars of those who have rejected God. The Tyre and Sidon function among the Hebrew prophets in a lot of the same way as, as Sodom and Gomorrah, if you know the way that shows up. So we hear Tyre and Sidon and we'll go, whoa, 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 whoa. We're definitely among the outsiders. We're definitely among the Gentiles. Jesus and his buddies have been just surrounded constantly by crowds. And now they withdraw to this Gentile region. And then this Gentile woman approaches him in public. As we talked about last week, this is actually a pretty scandalous thing that she does. And we're told not only is she a Gentile woman, we're actually told she's a Canaanite woman. And among all the deep divisions between Jews and Gentiles, perhaps the deepest, most historic division, a deep racial wound between the Israelites and the Canaanites. The people who lived in the land prior to the Exodus, that that they were supposed to be driven from the land. And there's deep-seated animosity. We hear the word Canaanite, and we're supposed to pay attention here's this woman who comes to Jesus and and calls him Lord, son of David. Remarkable insight for a Canaanite woman. And she pleads with Jesus because her daughter is suffering. Watch what happens next. Verse 23. Jesus did not answer her a word. So the disciples came to him and urged him, send her away. For she keeps crying out after us. She is uh, coming and pleading with Jesus, son of David. Lord, please my daughter. Jesus is silent. That's sort of unexpected. And yet I, I wonder how many of us can actually relate. Sometimes we find ourselves in those times where we cry out to Jesus. It feels like all we encounter is silence. And the disciples are are watching this whole thing play out. And they see what's happening here. And and they they get exercised, right? The Gentile woman coming to Jesus, approaching him in the midst of it, like she is crossing all kinds of boundaries here. And they just say, Jesus, tell her to go away. Tell her to leave us alone. Watch what Jesus does. Verse 24. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. Now, once again, this, this, is, this is not what we've come to expect from Jesus. And yet, he's speaking what we would expect in the first century world of a Jewish rabbi to say. That the Jewish rabbi, we would expect to say, well, my ministry is about the people of Israel. And in fact, this is what Jesus has primarily come to do, that God's plan from all the way back in Genesis chapter 12 was to take the nation of Israel, make them the special objects of his affection and blessing so that the world would come to know the truth about God through the people of Israel. And so Jesus has come to bring this message of the kingdom, the inbreaking of the kingdom to the people of Israel. And I have a feeling the disciples are watching this going, that's right. That's right, Jesus. You tell her, Jesus. But notice Jesus didn't send her away. Then, then, then keep watching. The woman came and knelt before him. She's falling down now to her knees. Lord, help me, she said. And he replied, it's not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Whoa. Even in our cultural context, we can recognize that that, that probably sounds pretty offensive. Now, it, it may soften the blow a little bit to know that the word that's translated here as dogs is actually a diminutive form. It, 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 like little dogs, like a little house dog. I, all my life, I've been a big dog guy. And yet a few years ago in our family, we adopted from, we rescued a, a little dog, our dog Finn. And, and Finn, um, as best as we can tell, is a combination, a mix of Papillon and Chihuahua, which makes him a Papiwawa, which is like the, the least masculine type of dog that you could possibly have, right? He's a, he's a little dog. And the word that Jesus uses here refers to the little dog. Among the Israelites, all dogs were were unclean. Nobody kept the house pets. Now, among the Gentiles, it seems as though some of them actually kept the house pets. So, So maybe there's something here where Jesus is using this image of, like, in my house, we have this argument all the time where Kim's wanting to give scraps to the little dog. I'm like, no, you can't do that. But Jesus is saying, it would be like taking the the meal set before my son, Pearson, my middle kid, and taking it and just giving it to the dog. Jesus says, you're not supposed to do that. He's like, I've come for Israel. I can't give you what's supposed to be for them. And I have a feeling once again, the disciples hearing all this, they're going, that's right, Jesus. You tell her, Jesus, you tell that dog, go away. Now, this is kind of uncomfortable, isn't it? I mean, we can sort of move past this pretty quickly and just sort of almost pretend it's not there. But I think ultimately, we come across passages like this. We actually have to wrestle. What's going on here? And I think there's kind of a spectrum of interpretations. If you look at the literature, the way scholars have kind of dealt with this, at one end of the spectrum would be kind of the, the, the critical, the progressive perspective that just says, well, this is Jesus perpetuating the um the ethnic prejudice of his day. Right? Jesus is just being racist. And I think we have to immediately say this is a sub-Christian perspective. Right? It's a sub-Christian perspective to think that Jesus is just participating, just perpetuating the, the ethnic prejudice of his day. But we don't just reject it because it's a sub-Christian position in the sense that it can't be that. Although I think that's important that we acknowledge, but it also doesn't make sense of the text. It doesn't make sense of the way in which Jesus interacts with other Gentiles. And it doesn't make sense of the fact that when you get to the end of the book, Jesus is going to issue this multi-ethnic commission, go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. So not only do we reject it because it, it, it can't be possible. We reject it because it just doesn't make sense of the text. On the other end of the spectrum are those who kind of say, you know what? What Jesus says here is actually not all that offensive. He's talking about the little dogs, the cute little dog. And so he's just using a metaphor. It's really not all that offensive. And I think the metaphor wouldn't be lost on her and certainly not on the disciples. But I think there's another option that that sees what Jesus is doing here as the master teacher who's sort of Messing with his audience. That Jesus is actually playing the part. That Jesus is saying and doing. Exactly what the people in the scene. Would be expecting Jesus to say and do. Except the way this story revol- resolves. Shocks and astonish those. Who are participating in it. Jesus is offering something of a test. For her. To see. Just how tenacious is her faith? But he's also teaching his disciples an important lesson that they will never forget. Like this is a story that you wouldn't just sort of make up out of thin air. And yet, all the all the uh, the synoptic gospels tell this story of Jesus' encounter because this left them again jaws gaping open. Because watch what happens. Jesus says, it's not right to take the children's bread and give it to the dogs. And then she says, verse 27, yes, it is, Lord. Even the dogs, the little dogs eat the little crumbs that fall from the master's table. Then Jesus said to her, woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted. And her daughter was healed at that moment. Once again, Jesus sees the tenacity of her faith. The disciples watch the tenacity of her faith. And then they see Jesus take this Canaanite woman and hold her up once again as a model of great faith. And their jaws are left gaping open. Now, take these three scenes, put them together, and what have you got? Let me offer you three observations that I think lead to application for us. And the first is this. When you look at all three of these scenes, all three of these stories of Jesus, we see this first. Jesus goes out of his way to cross the boundaries of his day. Right? Jesus goes out of his way to cross the boundaries of his day. It's easy for us to stay in our comfort zones, to, 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 to maintain this sense of connection just with people who are like us, people who like us, or people who we wanna be like. And yet Jesus goes out of his way to cross the boundaries of his day. Friends, the world loves to build up walls and Jesus loves to tear them down. Let's join Jesus in his mission of tearing down walls. Second, Jesus treats with dignity those who are different. Jesus treats with dignity those who are different. That even with this woman, he ultimately holds her up as the model of great faith. Jesus always treats with dignity those who are different. And it's just a reminder that there are no outsiders to God's love. And what I'm faced with in light of that fact is the question, are there to mine? There are no outsiders to God's love are there to mine? The third observation differences don't disappear, but they take on new meaning. The differences between these people, the differences between these characters, don't just disappear, but they take on new meaning because there's something that brings us together in Christ that is ultimately greater, ultimately deeper, ultimately more central. Then the things that keep us apart in the world, the differences don't just disappear, but they take on new meaning. Friends, the world loves to build up walls. Jesus loves to tear them down. Let's join Jesus in his work of tearing down walls. And I wonder for you and for me, what are the lines that God might be calling us to cross? What are the walls that God might be calling us to tear down? Walls in our city, lines in your neighborhood, lines in your family, lines even within this congregation, lines in your workplace, lines in your own heart. The world loves to build up walls, to create lines. Jesus loves to tear them down. Let's join Jesus in doing so you pray with me? Father, we thank you for the good news of the gospel. For the reminder that Jesus crossed the ultimate boundary between heaven and earth to come to rescue us. We thank you for the reminder that, that there are no outsiders to your love. And, and we thank you for that because if it were possible, we would be those outsiders. There is... Nothing that we have done or could ever do to earn your love. And in fact, in so many ways and and so many times again and again, we have scorned your love. For all of us have sinned and fallen short of your glory. And yet you love us still. That Jesus crossed that boundary from heaven to earth to come and rescue us. To tear down walls between us and you and to tear down walls between us and one another. Lord, we pray that you'd help us to, to see, to take notice of those, those walls, those lines that you desire us to tear down, to, to cross over in our lives this week. We love you and we thank you for your amazing love for us. And we pray all this in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this teaching from Irving Bible Church. For more information on how to join us on a Sunday or take your next step, visit irvingbible.org.